So we're jumping into joy, uh, but before we get there, I want to just uh, share with you a question that I asked a friend of mine. I said, why do you care if I forgive Bob or not? So my friend and I were sitting outside the empty tomb in Jerusalem. We'd just been to the place where Jesus' body lay uh, after he had died in order to forgive all of us. And my friend thought that would be a good time to bring this topic up and ask me, when are you going to forgive Bob? Well, uh, so we were in the same church. I was his pastor. He was my business coach, and we were in an accountability group, and I'd been sharing with him for months about this relationship with, uh, with Bob and how I hadn't forgiven him, and I really had no intention of forgiving him. And uh, so my friend said, well, when are you going to forgive Bob? And I said, why does it matter to you if I forgive Bob or not? And my friend said, Neil, you're a pastor. If you can't do this, what hope is there for the rest of us? And I, I, I took up his challenge. And there in the shadow of the cross and the empty tomb, I prayed for forgiveness. And I asked God to give me the strength and power to forgive. And, and I did forgive what I can't get out of my mind, though, is the longing in my friend's question. Um, what hope is there for the rest of us? And my friend wasn't saying, well, I know I need to be more religious. Uh, you know, I, I know that I should do better and I should be better. What he was truly longing for was the ability to forgive. He wanted a life where he could forgive. Um, and because I know him well, I also know he wanted to be able to have more joy, to be able to love, to be patient, to have peace in his life. And in the heart of the Holy Land, he wanted what that land promised us. He looked at me, a person who's committed myself to living this kind of life, and he needed me to be able to live into that truth if he thought there was going to be any hope for himself. We all need hope. We all need to know that something can be done. It's very interesting in, in the human experience, if we know something can be done, if it's already been done, there, something inside us wells up and, and we feel like, well, we, maybe we could do it. Uh, so the four-minute mile, do you know that in, uh, it was in 1954 that the first person broke the four-minute mile barrier. Before that, everybody, nobody thought it, was, thought it was physically impossible to run faster than that. And so just think about it, 1954. So in recorded history, it took thousands of years for someone to, to run faster than four minutes. You know how long it took the second person to do it? Less than a month because they, he knew it could be done. And now, 60 years later, more than 1,400 people have run faster than that. It's not even a thing anymore. Um, because when we know something can be done, then it's, it's more possible for us to do it. Every person we know, every person we come in contact with, wants a better life. Pop quiz. What did Jesus come to give us? A better life! <laughs> 
He said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. We have what people want. And uh, people, I want to ask this, are we people, is this a community that others look at and get hope? That, they, that we demonstrate that kind of life. We offer that kind of hope so that people go, oh, it is possible. I could have that. After all, people want to be around people who accomplish their hopes and dreams, not just talk about it. So if any of us were wanting to run a four-minute mile, would we join a running club that had no one who had ever done it? Or would we join a club where, oh yeah, we all, we're all past that now. Absolutely, we would run that second. So my friend asked the pastor to be a model, but I'm expanding his question to all of us. And I want to put it in a positive way and say this, if followers of Jesus can achieve the life of freedom and love and joy, then there's hope for others who look at us and see us, people we know, the rest of us. The great news is that the good news of the gospel is we are destined for something more. We're destined for something more. Books and movies are filled with um, examples of characters who are destined for more. Start with the ugly duckling, right? Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Neo in The Matrix. Elle Woods in Legally Blonde. Destined, destined for something more. But it isn't just fictional characters. It's, it's our own real-life heroes that we know their story. They are destined. Abraham Lincoln, Amelia Earhart, uh, Neil Armstrong, we, we love to know that there's more for us. As followers of Jesus, we're destined for something more. We are destined for freedom. Freedom. And we're going to be looking at this book of Galatians and, uh, for the next few weeks. And Paul, who wrote the book of Galatians, was frustrated with the church at Galatia. He had gone there. He had... Uh, brought people to know the Lord. He had helped establish that church, and uh, he had taught them to separate themselves from any experience, anything that would hold them back from knowing the fullness of Christ, to break away from anything holding them in bondage. And, and they were excited about it. And then, and then he left, and other Christian leaders came, and they said, oh, no, 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 no. Your faith isn't enough. You have to obey the law as well. There are rules and rituals and observances you have to follow, plus your faith that is going to be what you need. And uh, Paul heard about it, and he wrote back to them. He actually wrote this book of Galatians in response to that to make it a bold proclamation. For freedom, Christ has set us free to get off the endless treadmill of, I have to do more, I have to be more. So before we begin a series on being destined for more, let's be sure we understand that it's something we get to do. Not something we have to do, not something we're forced to do, but this freedom is something we get to do, we're free to do. It's, it's the best thing that we could ever have in our lives. 
Um, so in the first 15 verses uh, of Galatians chapter 5, Paul just has this wonderful, long uh, explanation, battle, uh, debate between freedom and slavery to the law. And I just want to read for us the freedom passages so that you get a sense, the espresso of the freedom uh, in Christ. So it says this, <clears throat> so Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free and you don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't God, for he is the one who called you to freedom. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. What a great passage for, for freedom. The point is we were created and destined for freedom. We can break the chains of anything that holds our souls back. Um, and the Christians in Galatia had found and tasted that freedom and then crawled back into the prison of binding themselves up with laws and rules and regulations. And I love what Paul wrote. Who, who held you back from following the truth? It certainly wasn't God because he's the one who called us to freedom. So what does this destiny of freedom look like, practically speaking? We are destined to become like Jesus. That's the freedom. The freedom to become like Jesus. And becoming like him means taking on the character traits of Jesus. Uh, and so where do we, is there a list somewhere? I'm glad you asked. It's in Galatians chapter 5. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. But why would we want any of that if Jesus didn't have that? The fruit of the Spirit are the character traits of Jesus. The, the character traits we have the opportunity to take on ourselves. Um, many of us have heard these nine traits repeated often. We've probably sung them in Sunday school. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I know a couple of those in there, you might be like, well, I might not really want that one. But you know what? Most of them, we'd be like, yeah, I could use more joy in my life, more peace. And there are people who think I could have more patience as well. So who wouldn't want some of that? So I want to read to it to you from the message because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great uh, way and it's some new language for us. It says this, but what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance for life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. Wow, that's interesting. If, if there's any clearer picture of uh, living God's way cannot be forced on us through rules and regulations. I, I don't know it. This is just such a wonderfully clear 
uh, explanation. Let me just read it again. It says, legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. So how are we going to, uh, so we're going to look at how we get to live into God's way, his freedom, and develop the characteristics of Christ. Now I'm going to warn you now, this is probably going to look different than any study you've done on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, if maybe you've done those before, um, I have. Uh, for instance, it doesn't really matter to me if you ever learn the Greek word for any of these fruit. And it doesn't matter to me if you know how many times the word patience is found in the New Testament or joy in the Bible. That isn't important. I'll tell you what's important to me. I want to see some of you more patient by Easter. I want to see some of us more filled with joy by Palm Sunday. That's the learning of Scripture. Not the learning of the rules and the regulations or the, you know, the, the, the bits and pieces, but, but having it transform our lives. Um, we're going to uh, take love, which is the first, and push it to the end. Let that be our wrap-up about nine, ten weeks from now. So today we are looking at wanting to be, seeking to be, hoping to be joyful like Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great way to start the Lenten season? Joyful like Jesus. The translation we just read translates the word joy as exuberance about life. And uh, that's why I, uh, I'm so happy we sang happy. It's, there's an exuberance about life that comes out of that song. And Jesus had an exuberance about life. Let me uh, read us this verse from Luke 18. Familiar story to many of us. It says, One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Now, isn't that interesting? How do children receive good things? With exuberance, with joy, with excitement. So I don't know if you've heard the story of the rancher who had a city kid come to his ranch. And the city kid couldn't wait to see the horses. But the rancher was too busy. So he said, hey, uh, go do something about all the horse manure in the barn. Uh, you know? And so the kid went in. And about an hour later, he hadn't come back. So the rancher went to check on him. And this city kid had manure all over him. And it was all over the walls. It was like he had taken it and by hand just been throwing it everywhere. And uh, the rancher said to him, what are you doing? And the, the city kid, big grin on his face. He said, with all the horse manure in here, there has got to be a pony somewhere. <laughs> That's a kid. That's how kids are. They're like, whoa. They're so excited about everything. And, and uh, we are invited to have that kind of exuberance. Somebody wondered, what would life be like if the adults in charge had kid-like minds? And uh, they came up with this. Life would be a million times better if there were pinatas strategically placed throughout the day. Wouldn't that be something? Just walk along and wham, candy everywhere. It's just, oh. Imagine spontaneous moments of happiness bursting out. 
around us. Imagine if they burst out because of us. Because we're there. Um, if they broke out in our own lives because our own lives, our natural response to something would be joy. I want to teach you three ways to have joy. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's a waste of time. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, teaching is a transactional event. I talk, you listen, sometimes you write it down, and then what happens to those notes? I mean, they're lucky if they get to your car. <laughs> but I don't know where last week's went after there, right? It, 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 it goes from my mouth to your head, but oh, seldom to our heart, where we, where we incorporate it into who we are and what we're doing. The thing is, teaching about joy is transactional. Joy is transcendent. All the fruit of the Spirit, all the character traits of Jesus are transcendent. They go beyond the range of merely physical human experience. It can't be explained just by merely physical human experience. The problem is almost everything in society is transactional. I give Starbucks money, they give me coffee. I post something on Facebook, people who agree with me like and share. We won't talk about what the others do. <laughs> but you'll know, you'll know both of those are transactional events. Agree with me and we're good. Disagree with me and we see in our country what it means. Transactional. Life is transcendent. Life is more than our physical experience. And the character traits of Jesus are part of that more um, so, uh, this isn't in your notes, but you might want to write this down. Transactional can never substitute for transcendence. That's the challenge in our life, though, because there's so much transactional taking place. Life is not transactional. Life is transcendent. It's beyond the range of merely physical human experience. We are transcendent beings. Who we are. What we think is, goes beyond physical experience. So the greatest surgery team in the world cannot open any of us up and point to us. Oh, that's where they are. In the brain, right there. That's where Neil is. It's not, we're transcendent. It's all of that and more. Um, so we are more than physical. Jesus' character traits are transcendent, not transactional. So we can't make an arrangement where you get a little bit more joy each time I talk. It, you don't get a 1% more joy when you come to church, when you do your daily devotion and we're adding it up. It, it doesn't work that way. You know how joy happens. In a wave, it overwhelms us. We are caught up in joy or not at all. Right? It isn't incremental. Um, we don't see it coming, but the problem is, is that we boil life down into transactional experiences, and it takes all the transcendence out. Let me give you a transactional story of a time when Carolyn and I met some folks in the Netherlands, in Holland. We were going to see friends of friends, and when we got there, the dad was at work, 
and so we spent a little bit of time with the mom and two little kids, a boy and a girl. And uh, they took us on a little tour of their town, and then uh, they gave us fried fish out of the freezer for lunch. Uh, and then the little kids sang a song, and we left. That's what happened. Not that much. <laughs> Why then did we leave humbled, with tears of joy in our eyes, and with a deep appreciation for that family and for their neighbor and for even their whole little town. It wasn't anything to do about the transactions that took place. It's all about the transcendence. So let me tell you the transcendence story. The dad was away and the mom was there and the little boy was seven years old, and his little sister was four years old. They didn't speak a word of English. They spoke Dutch. Now, we talked for a little bit, and then the mom said, while she gets lunch ready, her kids are going to take us on a tour of their little town. And they did. And uh, so here's the interesting thing. She sent her four-year-old and seven-year-old off with complete total strangers, and they, in fluent Dutch described everything going around us. And we got to a statue that was looking out to sea. It was a woman. And, uh, and then it had a wall, a half wall around it with names on it. And uh, the little boy, in a very serious tone, pointed at the uh, statue and talked and told us something about it and then pointed to the town. And then the little girl beckoned us over to one particular place on the wall, and we knelt down, and she pointed at one name on the wall, and then said something. And we had no idea what it was. <laughs> so we got back to the home, and the mom was frying fish. And we sat down for lunch, and as we were eating, we said, we said tell us about the statue. We, we, what, who's the woman? And she said, uh, where our fishermen go fishing, there are tremendous and dangerous storms in that ocean, and they don't always come back. And that is a memorial to the men and women who haven't come back. The woman has a look of anxiety on her face as she looks out to sea. And the names on the wall are the names of those who didn't come back. And we said, well... What's, who's the person? Your daughter pointed at one name and then said something, and we didn't, we didn't know what she said. She said, that's the son of my neighbor, an old man. As soon as you left on the tour, he came over and asked who the Americans were. And when I told them, he went to his freezer and got the fish out. And we're eating some of the last fish his son caught before his name went on the wall. I mean, you could hardly eat it, but you couldn't not because it was such a gift. I didn't even, I never even met the man. But every time I tell that story, it wells up in me the joy and the humility that that woman would entrust her children to strangers, and that man would offer sacrificial hospitality to complete strangers from America. Wow. Wow.
And then after lunch, the, the, the two little kids sang the national anthem of Holland and asked us to sing ours. It chokes us up. Not because of the transactional value of frozen fish. Because of the transcendent nature of life that we experienced. If we don't learn to live this way, what hope is there for anyone else? We have the answers. So I'm going to teach you about joy. Uh, but I'm going to do it by just giving you three ways Jesus demonstrated the joy in his own life and then help us see how we might absorb some of that and practice it. So three ways Jesus developed and expressed joy. Number one, he expressed gratitude. We see this all the time in what Jesus was doing. And in John 6, 11, it says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, even before anything happened, before they were multiplied, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to, those that were, to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. You know the story. And Jesus expressed gratitude to his heavenly Father. Um, and he did it all the time. Number two, Find purpose. Jesus knew why he was here. In John, it says, Jesus answered, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Jesus knew his purpose. He was passionate about it. And number three, double down on good relationships. Jesus didn't give up on people. So, John 21 says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And if you know that story, if you don't, go read it in chapter 21. If you do, you remember that Peter had denied Jesus, denied that he even knew him, and felt so grieved that he went off fishing, and Jesus, after his resurrection, came to him and redeemed that relationship, restored it. And this passage is him just being a normal person, re-engaging with someone. Jesus doubled down on good relationships. So here are three practical ways to develop joy in our own lives. Number one, express gratitude. There are circumstances we can be grateful for every day, every hour. We can be thankful for our health, for our family, for our lives. Um, but the, the more important thing is not just be grateful, but express it. Tell people thank you. And don't just say thanks. Be specific. We thank the barista for making us a good cup of coffee. But do we thank people in our lives for what they do? Thank you for your service. Thank the volunteer for what they've done. Thank you for you who helped set this room up. Even if it's your job, thank you for doing a great job. So this week, I want to encourage you, be specific about thanking people and, be, and thank them specifically for what they've done. And then each night this week, you can reflect back during, uh, on your day and, and think of the people you thanked. And tomorrow, thank one more than that and see what happens uh, and your joy increase over just one week. Number two, find purpose. Don't just have work and hobbies. Have passion 
find a purpose. Someone said that, uh, that uh, what we do for a living gets us up in the morning. What, we, what our purpose and passion is gets us up in the middle of the night. I have a friend who is a Dale Carnegie uh, trainer and speaker. She's amazing, uh, and yet that isn't what brings her joy. She takes those skills and she applies them in a ministry where she speaks to hotel and restaurant management about human trafficking up and down our own freeway system. That's her passion. There's a purpose in her life. So this week, I want you to think about what you're good at. Now, I know a lot of us take a lot of time to think, I'm not very good at very much. No, you are. Even if it's just binge-watching Netflix, you're good at something. (laughs) So make a list of a couple things that you're good at, and then then think about how could I use those things to really give me joy? And you know what? You will be on your path to discovering your purpose. And it may just be the purpose for right now. But having purpose gives us joy. And uh, number, number three, double down on good relationships. I want to encourage you to build your friendship 401k. I, I, when I teach uh, young adults or young married couples, I say invest in friendship. Because there is going to come a time in your life where you need to, to with a withdrawal. You need, you're going to need some friendship and support at some point. And when you need it, it's too late to build it. You need to have done it ahead of time. Build your friendship bank up. And uh, so here's what I want to encourage you to do this week. Um, think of two or three people that you're friends with or that are potential friends and write them a handwritten note and mail it to them. And the first sentence is, I was listening to a talk on friendship, and it made me think of you. And you finish the rest, and you will have put a penny in your joy bank, and one in theirs as well. So, before we forget, I want you to remember, joy is not something we generate. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I love that Galatians and Paul tell us that. We can't work it up. You know what? Wow, we got this big party coming up. I better feel some joy. No, no. It's when the Holy Spirit lives in us and fills us. It, it, he does the work in us so that it is produced like a fruit out of the abundance of inside us. So um, in addition to the other things, I, I want us to invite us to pray a prayer every morning. I think it's in your notes, uh, and it is something that John Stott, a famous preacher, used to pray every single day, and there's an, an extended prayer there, but I just want to give you this part. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will find me, fill me with yourself, and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, someone might say, well, what good is that really going to do? It couldn't hurt. (laughs) It's probably going to be better after a week of praying that than a week of not. Work with the Holy Spirit and ask that he take you beyond the prison of this transactional life that we live into the transcendence 
of the goodness of Jesus in our lives, the freedom that Jesus offers. What hope is there for others? Just the hope that we demonstrate out of lives lived through the freedom of Christ. Let's pray.